Hello, everybody. As I fix my mic too late, it is Wednesday, November 8th, 2017, and this is the promotional malpractice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. My name is Luke Thomas. I am the host of this program. We'll go for about, oh, I don't know, um, 90 minutes or so. Sorry, I got allergies today. It's kind of killing me. Um, We'll talk about UFC 217. We'll talk about, uh, let's see, UFC Norfolk. We'll talk about Zufa Boxing. We'll talk about a lot of things. Whatever you want to get to, we can get to. Best place to do that is to get your questions in on MMAfighting.com, where this window is embedded. You can also go to Twitter at LThomasNews. Uh, and use the hashtag chat wrappers. All the instructions are on MMA Fighting, and we can get to them one of two ways. Thank you guys so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Subscribe to MMA Fighting and uh, like this video. By the way, I sometimes do it on my own personal channel, and I know when the crew goes on the road for the big shows, we always do one. Um, But this Saturday, this Saturday, on MMA Fighting, on this channel right here, I'll be doing a post-fight show for about 30 minutes or so right after the main event is over. So if you're looking for some instant analysis, instant reaction, the kind you might be accustomed to seeing if you've ever seen it on my personal YouTube channel. But, you know, more or less just me sort of spitting at you for 30 minutes, uh, give or take, um, based on how things go on that. So be on the lookout for that. We're going to try that out here at MMA Fighting, see how that goes, huh? All right. Um, Let's get to these questions. I appreciate you guys joining me. I'm going to pull up the live thread now. Um, Two quick housekeeping notes that were sort of top of the mind that I want to get to. Again, pardon me, I've got a bit of allergies here um, before we get started. Number one, many of you had asked me last week, and I brought this up several places. um, Many of you had asked me, hey, Luke, you smelling an upset in the Rose fight? I was like, no, not really. Boy, that's genius insight, huh? I mean, look, here's the reality. If you tell me anybody's going to win, I'll be like, okay, whatever, it's MMA. But uh, I just certainly didn't see... Uh, her winning that way, and I, you know, MMA is crazy. So for those who saw that coming, well done, well played. Um, you guys had better insight on that one than I did. And then um, somebody had asked me last week, you know, hey, there's all these videos of Robert Whitaker training. God damn, training hard. Um, doesn't that mean he's ready to go? So he was. He did the scrum. I don't know if you guys saw it. I, mean, I wanted to make sure I, I double checked with him when I asked him. If you guys saw the scrum from last week or last weekend, rather, UFC 217, he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm fully healed, I'm fully training. And I was like, just to clarify, you're like, you're you're fully training now, but you wouldn't be ready to peak right now. And I think that's the idea. If you've seen him train, people are like, well, if he's ready to go now, why isn't he fighting? He can fully train right now. It's just that he wouldn't have been ready at this point, given the recovery cycle, to be ready at that point. But he's ready to fully train. So that means if he had to, could he fight by the end of the year? Something like that, maybe so, right? That's where he's at. So just to clarify some uh, a couple of things um, right from the outset. So I want to have a mea culpa up front, and a cl- not a clarification, but like a, um, getting back to you guys on something you had asked me that I didn't necessarily know a whole lot about when you did. Um, okay, let's get this going, shall we? Yes, we shall. And... I've got my brilliant Purple Haze mug. Y'all know what Purple Haze is? If you're from New Orleans, you do. It's, uh, well, this is not beer. This is Coke Zero. Quite flat, I might add. Uh, it's Abita. Y'all know Abita beer? It's this fantastic beer out of, I mean, I don't know if it's based in New Orleans, but every time I go to New Orleans, they have it in abundance. Uh, it's very, very, very good. My micro brewed on there. America's best beers, you'll never find, I won't say never, almost never at the national level. It'll be a micro brew, like a regional brew somewhere. Whenever you go to someplace, 
If you're visiting an American city, always order local. The chances that the beer will be better than anything else is very high. Very high. Okay. And Abita is delish. Purple Haze is very good. All right. GSP versus McGregor. Wow. First question. Right at it. Number one, does this fight happen? Seems like it's probably inevitable, doesn't it? I did, um, I did. Uh, if you're in Toronto, I did the Fan 590 up there. And uh, I knew they were going to ask about GSP. I just wasn't thinking about anything else. I was thinking, well, they're going to ask about Tyron. They're going to ask about Robert Whitaker. How's this going to go? You know, you want to make sure you have decent answers in your head. And then they're like, yeah, Luca, it's uh, GSP versus Connor, inevitability. And I hadn't honestly given it a ton of thought. I own myopia, I suppose. And now it's like, if that's the first question casuals are asking me, and we're living in a post-Mayweather-McGregor world, it would be very foolish to assume that the chances of that happening are slim. That's that's sort of my response. Is there anything in the immediate? I have no. I have no indication that that is true. But thinking long-term, um, seems like that might be on the docket at some point. Is there any ridiculous chance that it's a middleweight title bout? That seems unlikely. Given the challenges that McGregor faced, Merely at 170 with the weight. Uh, I find that unlikely. St. Pierre saying prior to all of this that if he wanted to get down to 155, he could. Now, that might take some time given how bloated and bigger he looked at 185. But, no, I don't think that would happen there. Now, again, people are like, well, what if McGregor wants the three or the four titles or whatever, however he progresses up in weight? Fair enough, but it just seems like it would be such a competitive disadvantage for him. Like he would rely, he would need his reflexes and speed. And at 185, Connor would probably be very slow relative to what he is at you know 155 or something. Uh, if they make this fight, how much long-term promotional damage does the UFC risk? Promotional damage risk in terms of divisional hierarchy, increased fighter malaise, and a failure to put over deserving fringe stars. Yeah, this is the thing that was interesting. It's a great question here. Oh, it's from McKinley Noble. McKinley Noble is a very good, very smart person. Um, these are great questions. So uh, I was talking about this yesterday with somebody, and I was trying to think this through. So the question is, you have GSP now as your middleweight champion. What do you do next? Right? You have a lot of different directions you could go. If you wanted to, I suppose, you could go the route of McGregor. That seems very unlikely, at least at this juncture, but it is an option. Um, you unify the title with Robert Whitaker. And you could do that in Perth, or you could do that back in Toronto or Montreal. I don't think he has to fight in Perth. It would be a bit of a lost opportunity, but it would be an even bigger lost opportunity to not have St. Pierre, um, given how short his return is probably going to be to not compete somewhere in Canada. So there's that. You could have him fight uh, Tyron Woodley, and who knows where that could be. That could also be in Canada. That could be in Las Vegas or something. Um, and he would go to 170. And so here's the different possibilities. You can have St. Pierre fight uh, it, it, Whitaker at 185 in Perth or somewhere else. You can have him try and keep his title and come back to 170. It's not clear to me he has to fight Whitaker next, right? So he could keep his title and then fight Tyron Woodley at 170, become a, a guy to hold, the second guy to hold a, weight, a belt in two different weight classes, right? And recapture old glory to some extent. Or you could have him drop the weight of the belt rather at 185, then go to 170, Okay, you following me here? There's all different kinds of permutations you can follow. Here's the reality when you think about it. Um, the, the person I was talking to was like, well, just screw it. Just screw it. Just have him fight McGregor, get it over with, and then, you know, just let Whitaker ascend to the normal champion and championship, and then, you know, Woodley can find a more deserving contender. And I'm like, look, every direction you turn here, there's a benefit. If you fight Whitaker, obvious benefit. Unify the titles. If you fight Woodley, 
there's an obvious benefit as well. You're going back to your more um, custom, accustomed weight class. You're trying to reassert your old, your dominance back where you used to have it. There's something to be said for how difficult that would be, given that he, um, you know, won at 185. If he kept his title, that would be kind of incredible, right? And if he, if he drops it, um, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a different way that it works out. My point being is there's a benefit no matter what you do here, and there is also a noticeable cost. This is like the Middle East. There is no choice you're going to make here where there's not some significant cost to pay. If you go the McGregor route right away, which again, I find unlikely, but let's say they do. If they go the McGregor route, then what happens with Whitaker? Whitaker needs that somebody to fight to help grow his name. If he was just to become champion and try to build his name, assuming he had a length of dominance against the Weidmans and the Rockholds of the world, this is not nothing, but that's not nearly as beneficial. That's not the normal order of how the baton is passed, to be quite honest. Uh, he wouldn't get a whole lot of You could make the same argument for Tyron Woodley. That would be a problem there for him as well. Um, and to the point you raised, what would you do to fighter malaise to realize that this, these, the, what's the value of getting a belt set from some, a bit of a contractual boost if you're not really selling any pay-per-views ultimately after it's all over, right? Like what is the point of getting pay-per-view points if you don't sell pay-per-views? It's not a lot, right? I mean, you need you need the, the two have to work in some kind of tandem. You know, you don't have to have Ronda Rousey numbers, but you got to have better than you know one hundred and fifty thousand to really make something out of it. So, um, so it, I'm not saying people are going to not take the title seriously, but he's asking about the future long term damage. Frankly, I don't really know what the right answer is. My hunch is that it's either Woodley. My my initial thought on Saturday night was well, just Woodley, and now I'm thinking, well, if you could move the Whitaker fight to Canada, that would change the equation a little bit, I think. Um, I, it, it's hard to say. I don't really know. It really depends on what they do. But my sense is if they went the McGregor route, which I don't think they will, that would be a very piece of significant damage. If he goes the Woodley or Whitaker route, it's not nearly as bad. It might be some kind of incremental damage. I don't think it would be a fundamentally game-altering kind of damage, but but let it be known. Let it be known. It does not matter what choice they make here. There is a cost to be paid, and this was the whole objection to him having this fight to begin with. Um, you know, obviously, after uh, Bisping was injured four time, and then Whitaker was injured four time, and they couldn't make the fights they wanted to with Romero, and then they made the Romero Whitaker one in the end, and and then Bisping came back around when he was healed. They, they ended up in this place, and with the you know with uh, Dana White saying that the Woodley fight at 214 was boring. They ended up in a place where it made a lot more sense in the end than it did when they first announced it. Um, but there was a cost to be paid. You wanted to have a guy come in who'd been off four years, who didn't fight in this division, who had no ranking, no real claim to do it, and he gets up there and he fights. Okay, great, he wins. Amazing. It's an amazing moment, right? Now you got to figure out how you untangle this knot that has been uh, put together, and it's not going to untangle itself. So time time to pay the bill on this one, basically. Says, after every freak show fight we hear, once this is over, we can finally go back to some normalcy. As much as I love GSP, if he doesn't vacate or fight Bobby Knuckles, I'll be pissed. I can understand that. Uh, Connor or GSP, didn't people have enough of that crap with him, the Mayweather farce? Do people really want to see him again in a, uh, such a big mismatch masked with fake odds? Yeah. Yeah, people do. People, There, there was no real reason to see Mayweather McGregor, right? I mean, yes, it was a celebrity factor. There was, I suppose, on some casual level, an intrigue factor, but you know, what everyone basically thought was going to happen in the end happened. There was a bit of drama early, but, you know, if you wanted to be, if you wanted to look at it a certain perspective, as some have, you could say, well, you know, Mayweather wasn't really trying that hard. And in the end, not only did he won, he stopped McGregor. Like, if I had told you, yeah, they're going to fight, Mayweather's going to win, he's going to stop him, that shouldn't have been much of a controversial claim. Um, um, 
he had no boxing experience, professional boxing experience. So that would make sense. Now, of course, kind of performed, I think, more ably than some. Um, it was highly entertaining to a degree, right? But uh, it, it, in terms of the outcome, it matched almost exactly um, what sort of the more general pre-fight prescriptions were. So, or predictions rather, I should say. Um, so would people want to do that again? Yeah. People don't really care about that kind of stuff. It's the intrigue. It's the mystery. It's the celebrity of the mystery. It's the, um, it's the, you know, it's the characters involved. Yeah, they're absolutely that, that fight would do huge, huge numbers. And you can, do, I mean, to me, that's infinitely more sellable than. I mean, I don't. I, okay, when I say that, I don't mean it will do as big numbers. But to me, Saint Pierre at 170 versus Connor at 170, if they really wanted to do it, or at 155, even because then you're really bringing Saint Pierre down to uh, new territory. Um, that, that fight makes a lot more sense than Mayweather versus McGregor, infinitely. You're talking about two MMA fighters, two decorated guys, two of the guys of the four total that have held belts in two different weight classes, competing in a weight class that's um, you know, more giving to one over the other, so there's a bit of controversy or conflict there and, and challenge against uh, a guy who's older versus a guy who's younger, a guy who's in his prime versus a guy who is still very, very talented, but maybe on the outside of it. Um, yeah, that's easy to sell. And then, by the way, one's maybe the greatest ever, and one is the most popular ever. That seems very, that seems very fertile soil for a promoter. Yeah. Whether or not they should make it, whether or not it's the most meritorious, these are issues that are hard to answer. One says, "If this is this person writes, if Whitaker versus GSP Connor, Connor Jesus." Connor versus Tony and Woodley still waiting at welterweight. They can't do it next. If GSP versus Connor happens, it's likely at welterweight. So one of them needs to take the belt off of Woodley first. You could have him just fight a middleweight, but I see your point. Then you could talk about a GSP versus Connor super fight. That or just make a random worthless interim belt like they need to now. It feels to me like G if they did a GSP versus Connor fight, uh, you don't really need a belt for that one. Not saying it doesn't make it better. It would. It would certainly look nice on a poster. But you don't you don't really need it for that one. That one is when the celebrity is so huge, um, and the names are so big, you'd be okay without doing one. I don't think that would fundamentally hurt the promotion of that contest. I'd also agree it could help if you had it. But there you go. You'll see Norfolk. Good card. What do you think of this Norfolk card? Favorite fight on the card. Uh okay. Here's the card itself. Poirier Pettis. Brown, Sanchez, Arlovsky, Albini, Marquardt, Fajera, Asuncao, Matthew Lopez, Lozon, Guida. That's your main card. That's a sick main card. Uh, Dodson versus Marlon Marais. People are sleeping on that fight. Uh, Tatiana Suarez is back versus Vivian Pereira. Sage Northcutt versus uh, Michelle Quinones. Angela Hill, Ansaroff, McGee, Strickland, Collier, Fortuna, and then Stuart Robertson. I'm going to say... My favorite fight on the card, it's got to be the main event, Poirier versus Pettis. Huge stakes in that one. Um, general thoughts, the card is probably one of the best fight nights in a very long time. There's something to like on all of them. You know, inshallah, knock on wood, everything stays in place. We don't have too much of a degradation between here and there. You know, we still have, a, we still have morning weigh-ins to go through, so let's not count our chickens before they're hatched, but... But uh, it, it is an absolutely excellent card. Uh, and what I like about it is the diversity of weight classes, right? I mean, I, I like some events where they book around weight classes, where they emphasize weight classes. But in this one, you've got, look at this, lightweight, welterweight, heavyweight, middleweight, bantamweight, lightweight. That's your 
it's your main card. Then Bantam, there could be a little bit more diversity in gender, but I don't, it doesn't, I, you know, I'm not, I, the card is fine without it. Uh, women's Strawweight, then you have Lightweight again, then Women's Strawweight. So you got two Women's Strawweight fights, that's good. Then you got Welterweight, Light Heavy, and Middleweight. Um, I'm trying to look here. The only one not represented, let's see, Featherweight's not represented, and Flyweight's not represented. But, pardon me, but just about everything else is. So that's a pretty great card in terms of just showcasing. Um, you got to remember, MMA looks different depending on the weight class. It doesn't really look like heavyweight MMA. Um, women's bantamweight MMA doesn't look like, um, you know, men's welterweight. They, 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 they differ a lot in terms of the complexion, in terms of what the athletes can and can't do and what their tendencies are and what their skill sets are based on who's there. And so when you get a nice showcase like this, you get a nice broad look um, at the sport. So that's the one of my general views on it. Who do you have in Dotson Moraes? Moraes and then Pettis Poirier. Man, my sense is that Pettis should win that, but Poirier looks to be in excellent shape and has been, I think, doing really well for a long time. Uh, you know, the Alvarez fight had a weird ending, but, um, um, you know, Pettis, if he's on his game with his precision, um, with the, if he really sort of sticks to the kicking game on the outside, he doesn't box too much with Poirier, I really think he can do quite well from the outside. I think he's got great timing. Obviously, he's great with shots to the body. Um, Poirier tends to, as you guys know, bite down the mouthpiece and swing. He does his best work in boxing range or on the ground. Pettis should have enough takedown defense to either avoid the worst of it or stop it altogether. So really, this is about range. To the extent they're locked up or you know Pettis is on him, uh, excuse me, Poirier is on him, that could be one way. But is, if, if this is at kickboxing range, this is, this is in my judgment, um, Pettis' fight to lose. But it's going to be really interesting to see no matter what. And from the preliminary card, I, you know, that dotson Marais fight is just absolutely incredible. Dotson's hard to hit, and he's fast. I, this is a tough – Marais has not had an easy run in the UFC, you know. Um, that was a tough debut. I mean, Sun Sao and now Dotson, they're not doing him any favors, you know. So – I'm going to say Dodson. I, I feel like Dodson's still got a lot to offer at Bantam. He was quick at flyweight. He's lightning quick at Bantamweight. Uh, he's got a good chin on him and excellent takedown defense. I, I wonder I wonder if he can take that one. That's But both of those are very, very, very competitive fights. I wouldn't go hardcore on picking a winner either way unless you had some sort of um, tremendous insight, which I suppose in that sense I don't. Uh, according to Dana White, I know I heard this and I was like, Dana White, next year by a long shot in the company's history. Your thoughts? This person writes, "Is it just Dana Trump?" That's what he says. He basically uses the Maymac numbers to back his argument, but from a fan's perspective, it doesn't feel like the best year ever. In parentheses, even though UFC 217 kind of makes 217 220, excuse me, even though UFC 217 kind of makes 2017 the year feel okay right now, I would agree with that. What grade would you give 2017 if they do another good one on December 30th? Uh, main event announcement later this week, apparently. So, this one I thought a lot about as well. Um, without having the ability to audit numbers, I'm not saying you have to default to a position where you believe Dana White. I think we should, um, you know, have appropriate levels of skepticism about this. It's it's one that's hard to square. Here is my basic thought about this. I mean, there might be a number of ways in terms of accounting where if you because they were a promoter of Maymac, that they are able to claim, you know, even if they had to split off half to McGregor or something, whatever the, the, the split was, that they can claim, or, you know, maybe 30%, they can claim to have the whole 
revenue amount generated um, on the books. And then on top of that, if you add in the, what was the fairly significant workforce, um, you know, reductions and layoffs, that in terms of a cost cutting perspective matched with this tsunami of business that was Mayweather McGregor, that in that sense, um, there is some kind of tremendous payout or on the books, it looks really good for them. I think what most of us are pointing to is less about ways in which you could not fudge accounting, but here's the basic question. Did this year feel to you absent Mayweather McGregor, which of course was a boxing match to begin with, but did this year feel to you like a year where there was an incredible amount of either casual or hardcore enthusiasm about the product? Didn't seem that way to me. And if you were following them from the Ultimate Fighter era, you remembered it was a big deal when they signed these television deals in overseas markets. I don't recall many of those being announced this year. They're just didn't have successes. Not to say that they haven't created a business model where they have sources of revenue so that they're doing poorly. I'm not suggesting that they're doing poorly. It's just that be clearly a, a down year in terms of enthusiasm in the market and a down year in options notwithstanding, or now three, I suppose, if you count the Jones, maybe with the McGregor and then this. Pardon me. Um, it, a fairly clear year that there was not a tremendous amount of uh, pay-per-view buys. I think it was 2.6 million apps in those three um those three events, then you can look at some of the television ratings. They've been uh, seeking and reaching some new lows in certain ways. Again, some of the, the TV ratings from Saturday on FS1 were great, but they've had some lows as well. And it's not just them. Um, Bellator's had a lot of lows this year. You know, we, we talked about it before. They took over around a 700,000 mark as an average audience during the Rebney era. Now, they were in more homes, Spike was, or the soon-to-be Paramount. But they've had a decline as well. It's felt like the industry generally had a bit of a depressive moment here in this and then the UFC was not exempt from that now because the UFC is such a machine they had these moments where 214 217 and again Mayweather McGregor where they're able to show look if we can still put on the right kind of product there's plenty of enthusiasm to go around that's actually the really great news but the general level uh has seemed to be quite noticeably less than what it was whether that will be true for 2018 hard to say um whether that will be true um Beyond this point, you know, I, I don't know, but it, it's just, it seems to me either anecdotally or even with numbers that we have access to, it's very, very hard to claim that this was even as good as last year, much less the best year ever. You know, we, I think what was it last year they had five pay-per-views that passed the 1 million point. I don't think they've had one this year. So you're like, well, that's half your rev or just about half your rev. How can that kind of decline coincide with your best year when there hasn't been any other overseas market growth that we can fundamentally point to? So my, my sense is that it's probably a cost cut reduction matched with Mayweather McGregor accounting um, combination um, because I, I, again, I don't know. I don't have access to the numbers that he does. So we have our criticism there, but does it feel like to you anecdotally for whatever that's worth? And, you know, confirmation bias is certainly something to be careful about, but in just sort of reading the larger tea leaves of what we do know, um, MMA had a down year. And I think that that riptide pulled everyone along with it. We'll see if they can, if they can float out at sea, I guess, I'm taking this metaphor way too far.
Someone says the gate was 6.2 million and I actually gave OSP and Ramos 25K each. So we gave them another bonus and cut it in half because you know what? What do you do, right? Dana's UFC 217 post-fight press conference. What do you do? This person writes, you pay them both the whole 50K bonus. They're cost-cutting, man. Cost-cutting. I, I understood that one completely, actually. I mean, yes, it would have been great to see both guys get 50, but I get it. You don't just give 25K, like 25K away. Well, 50K in that case, um, like you used to, since it'd be two 25Ks. So it says the real question is whether he was referring to revenue or net income. Most of us feel revenue is low because of the lack of a huge cars. We don't know how much their costs have changed internally. Correct. It's possible that this year has been more profitable, even if the top line is down. Right. But that would be an, an accounting trick, but that would be a temporary bump um, that would not reveal itself over time. Um, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be an accurate reflection of market enthusiasm. Connor demanding to co-promote with the UFC. Last week, Connor said in an interview that he should co-promote his coming fights with the UFC. Do you think this is a possibility? If you were in Dana's shoes, what would you do? I don't know what I would do in Dana's shoes. Dana's perspective on this and what they want to do with their business is um, he has a totally different value set, not merely in in terms of his position as him, president, me, media members, right? Um, but as a person generally, he, I think he has a sort of a different set of, of, of values and, and ways in which he wants to go about negotiations in his business that um, I'm not here to degrade, I, but they're just not the same as mine. Um, you know, for me, I, it's look, the question is like, does he deserve it? Does he not deserve it? Will he get it? Will he not get it? Ladies and gentlemen, it is true for you. It is true for me. It is true for Connor. It is true for James Vick. It is true for name somebody on the regional level. Name somebody who's an amateur to gym. It is true for all of us. This is a leverage world. Get used to it. It's a leverage world. And to the extent you have it and to the extent you know how to wield it, um, people will bend for you. Otherwise, people are not going to bend for you. You have to make them. Um, the question is, does he have enough to make them? It seems like from the outside looking in, he does have enough to make them. Now, you hear him say it's been the most profitable year um, in the UFC's or you know, the best year, whatever, in the UFC's history. It sounds ludicrous, but that's probably some public posturing because he knows McGregor wants to be a promoter, although in large part, he's a consequence of that. But um, you get the idea. There's, there's some display of strength that needs to happen uh, that he has to say, look, many of our stars didn't compete. We still did quite quite nicely. Um, you know, they didn't bend for the M1 thing, but you know, as I mentioned, the MMA beat. We we you know they, the UFC at the time was just basically like we don't co-promote. Period. We don't co-promote. Uh, this is a rule of Zufa law. Like um, this this will be a thing that is true for you know since time immemorial and forever, and. They didn't do it with M1, and M1 wasn't even really a real co-promotion, which is partly why they balked at it. Nor would I think that a McGregor co-promotion would be real either. I mean, look, part of me just feels like this co-promotion thing is another way for Connor to say, hey, remember when I got pulled off that card? Was it UFC 202? He was supposed to be on? Or maybe it was 200, right? He was supposed to be on 200, and then they put him on 202. Um, I believe that's correct, yes. Um and there was this big argument because the contract stated, you know, the fighter has to make a reasonable effort at pr promoting this. Then there was a question about what reasonable effort, what constitutes reasonable effort. And when you're Conor McGregor, you know, putting on an Instagram post is pretty reasonable effort. But the point being was, 
and I think he either explicitly articulated this or many people had considered it, he, he wanted to be because the, the level at which he can do it and the results that come about the consequence are so much greater. This is a service that he is he can meet contractually. If he's going to go above and beyond that, he would like to be properly compensated for. Frankly, I understand that completely. I I understand McGregor's desire here to be a co-promoter. I don't think it's a crazy desire at all. In part, not just because he has the leverage, but because he can make a credible claim um, to saying this is work I should be paid for. I get it. I completely get it. It's just very hard to read what Dana White says. A lot of us, you know, Dana White says no. We kind of all assume yes. Um, I don't know what they're going to do with this one. I, 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 you know, should they? I, I don't think it would be that harmful to the business. I don't. It's a like I mentioned, it's a leverage world. You know, if TJ Dillashaw wanted to hold out for co-promoting, they would just let him hold out. I think or just strip him. Um, you know, because he can't. It would be disastrous for him and not for them for that to happen. By contrast, going to war with Conor McGregor carries significantly more risk. It's a leverage world. It's a leverage world. So. Um, do I think it's a possibility? Yes. If you were in Danish shoes, what would you do? I would do it. I would do it. But I have a very different life, um, a different worldview than Dana, and so I, it's it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to know what he's going to do. But if you're asking me, does Conor McGregor have cause and leverage to make it possible? The answer is pretty clearly yes. It'd be one thing if he had leverage and no cause. I think he has both. What do you make of part-time fighters who don't have their sole focus on fighting career and developing their MMA skills? Like part-time fighters like Dominic Cruz, Daniel Cormier, Tyrone Woodley, Bisping. I don't want to call them part-time. They have analyst roles that takes up a lot of their time. I know they take time off when they have an upcoming fight, but what's been said is uh, a fighter improves the most when they're outside of a fight camp. They're spreading themselves thin, and they're facing upcoming challengers whose sole focus is their MMA career. Should active fighters think twice about taking up the analyst role? Analyst, someone writes, and this gets four recommendations as an analyst train their minds a lot more than normal fighters because they are constantly breaking techniques down and getting to understand how to properly execute and defend same can be said for uh fighters who teach a little bit um wonder boy thompson teaches all the time in fact whenever i do interviews with him my show starts at four right whenever i do interviews with him i have to pre-record them because classes start when my show is going on so he'll pre-record before these uh, kids classes start but he is really diligent about being a teacher it's it's he he seeks it out. He uh, he loves it, right? So, uh, someone says. Besides that, there is less physical training, which can be good or bad. But someone who takes time to think about their skills and sharpen them through technique is more likely to succeed than if you just train harder like a brute. Case in point: the fighters you mentioned, Daniel Cormier, Tyron Woodley, Dominic Cruz, and Bisping, all held world titles as analysts. Well, in part, they were also picked because they had world titles. So it's a bit of both. But um, look, I think it's I think it's probably good for fighters who are. Um, a little bit more advanced and senior in their career, who know how to train, who know how much training is enough, how much training is not enough, um, who are willing to make proper management decisions in their camp about when you can do TV, when you can't. Um, and I do think generally you're right. It, it develops these skills to the point like like teaching can, um, that you know when they're uh, uh, the act of trying to explain it to others, help sharpen it for themselves as they begin their uh, analytical work and preparing for their fights or, you know, in, in evaluating themselves. I think that's all very true. But if it doesn't, if it isn't managed properly, it can be in, uh, a burden, right? If they take too much time out to do TV uh, because they're really worried about that next step in their career and they want to make that 
you know, bigger part of their life after fighting, you know, they might be uh, making that leap too early. There can, there can be some management issues. So I agree generally that those skills are advanced through that work, but the person also has to marry that with a proper understanding of what they have to do, what they, what's the minimum, what's the maximum. Do I have enough time in that space to make that work? Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Well, a lightweight division post UFC 46. I remember this very clearly. Um, why did they get rid of it? The person's asking because they believe there was no market there. Same reason why they had flirted with the idea of getting flyweight. At the time, there um, there were some decent lightweights, but MMA was more fractured promotionally. Uh, some of the best ones were fighting in Japan. Some of the best ones were not fighting in the UFC. Um, yeah, everyone looks back at the Eves Edwards knockout of Josh Thompson, and it's one of the most spectacular KOs ever, um, even to this day. But there just wasn't a lot of people competing in that division for them to keep it around. They had to make some choices about... You know, how much of a roster can we support with how many shows? Remember, they were doing many fewer shows at that time. It's easy to think about, like, why couldn't you keep your division around given the, the enormity of the schedule now? But back then, they had to make some really tough choices, and they just thought the market would be at 170 and up. Um, and I thought that was a little bit narrow at the time, but uh, and they brought it back relatively quickly, but um, that's basically what it was. They just, it was how, they, think about how everyone looks at flyweight now. It's kind of like that. That's kind of how I looked at it before. Not exactly the same because there were some people who could be the lightweight, but it was you, you add the combination of the fractured nature of MMA at the time, much more splintered. I mean, back in the day, Rumble and The Rock used to hold some of the best you know tournaments in, in the sport and the best fights in the sport and icon sport too. Hawaii used to be such a hotbed. Anyway, different story for a different time, but um, yeah, there you go. There's a reason. Yeah, this is a great one. Dana by getting his promoter's license for Sufa boxing. I really don't withhold judgment to see what they do. Um, but I've got some questions. Someone says, what in the F? There's no way he's going to regularly pay fighters a boxing level main event salary. Um, yeah, this is my thought on this one. I think um, uh, John Nash should articulate this first. So if I'm taking this from him, I want to make sure I properly cite it. Um, correctly, either the top talent in boxing, what they already make, and therefore not be able to recruit the best fighters, or they're going to pay them what they make, recruit them, and then the rest of the MMA roster is going to wonder what happened. Um, so I don't know what they're going to do. Are they going to try and build from the ground up? Are they going to sign guys for... Are they going to co-promote there? Uh, I it's there's so many ways this could go. Who who's going to be the kind of guy they sign? Are they going to sign a guy who's like a, you know, just a bite down the mouthpiece type? You know, I, I I really don't know. He made some additional claims, and Lance Pugmire had an article today in New York Times or um, L.A. Times, pardon, essentially arguing that, or or Dana White was arguing that, um, you know, look, no, everyone in boxing treats it like it's going out of business sale where it's a free for all, and. Um, and, you know, no one really invests back in the sport. I think a lot of that is probably true, but that's done in a way where the top fighters have, are the, um, are able to, able to maintain a high level of earning relative to MMA's top, because his argument was, you know, we have not just great main events, we have great cards and we spread the money around, right? Well, the top fighters don't want you to do that. <clears throat> 
the top fighters want the money for themselves, as you can naturally imagine. Pardon me, guys. I took an Allegra before this, but... In any case, so I... I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know what they're going to do. Uh, maybe they'll do something that I'm not... I'm sure they will do something I'm not considering. Um, but the businesses are fundamentally different. What are the other promoters going to do in the space? Uh, I don't know. How's it going to affect MMA if you have organizational resources being put towards boxing now? What will that mean for the MMA side? Are they going to fix that problem by augmenting personnel? I mean, they made all these cuts to their business. Are they going to rehire? Not the same people, but people to have a boxing division or is this going to fall on Sean Shelby? Like I, I just don't know any of the mechanics of how this is going to work. So it seems crazy. It seems crazy. Uh, but it, I, without knowing what they're going to do, how can you really make a claim about it? Positive or negative. Less than two months before UFC 219. Who do you think the co and main event will be? Uh, well, Cruz Rivera might be your co-main. Well, I guess we'll see. But if you follow Ariel's reporting, uh, Cyborg Home looks like it's not going to happen. And maybe McGregor might. So I guess we'll see there. Someone says, uh, keys to the victory for each fighter. I mean, that's a huge question. Cruz Rivera. Um, Condit Magni. That's an interesting one. And then Saki Roundtree. Yeah, that one's, these are all going to be, well, that one's going to be a banger. Condit Magni's interesting. Um, Magny's not great against the fence. I mean, a lot of fighters are not great. And they're not as, as good. He's obviously great t talent, but he gets a little bit tall against the fence. I wonder if Condit can pressure him forward and really sort of catch him with combos um, by by cutting off his motion. Cruz Rivera. Cruz is so hard for me to understand, to be honest. There's a lot of fighters I can watch tape and watch tape and get a basic idea of what's happening with Cruz, man. I've never really been able to get a firm grasp on it. BJJ Scout's much better at that than I am. Any warnings before taking a point? Yeah, that's a great question. Hi, Luke. Uh, thank you for subscribing to the channel. Thumbs up. I appreciate it. After a fantastic UFC 217, I think we were all still buzzing. Yes. But one thing that stuck with me was the Brown golf fight with the ref probably giving between 8 or 12 warnings without taking a point. Yeah, we go over this a fair bit. The lack of punishment from refs has led some MMA analysts like Robin Black to make an argument that coaches and fight camps are or might be even planning the fight with their fighters with an illegal shot like an eye poke groin shot or grabbing the fence maybe do you think that mma refs or commissions should be more severe and let's say allow for one foul but they can remove a point automatically like a yellow card red card system in soccer greetings from geneva switzerland i think the red card yellow card thing i know some folks didn't like that in pride that was one of the best things about pride um it was it was like a little graphic representation rather than some abstract warning everyone sees this yellow card i think that cognitively has a greater impact in the end i really really like that and uh you know whether they should do it automatically on the second one i don't know but i think that when you give these people these cards you know if they don't use them they're no good but if you have this culture of if you, if you have a culture that's sort of more um if you could find a way to to adopt them i really feel like it creates less opportunity to just have an endless stream of warnings, right? Because it's, it almost creates this line in the sand where the, whereas one warning can just build upon the next because they're all basically the same. The yellow card warning really is a moment to say, Hey, you're, you're about to get into no man's land here. So, um, 
So, or, you know, you get two yellow cards, for example, I think was like one of the rules in pride. I have to refresh my memory, but I really like that system. I, I don't know how palatable it would be to Americans, but I, things that pride did from a regulatory standpoint, considering they were so hands off, um, you know, 10 minute first rounds, I don't love, but I thought were intriguing. I was glad there was somebody out there doing things a little bit differently, but the yellow and red card system, I really, really like, I think it's, it's fundamentally not the same. Um, it's just issuing an endless stream of warnings. But the bigger part here is, number one, as I mentioned a number of times on this podcast, because we have ran towards regulation, regulation is now a function of bureaucratic uh, or um, you know um, government bodies. And any kind of update or change is going to be very difficult to come by. That's one problem. The other problem is no one really seems to believe, or at least very few seem to believe, that the major issue here is we don't empower the referees enough to interfere. We have this attitude currently in mixed martial arts. Where we want the referees to be very hands-off, that a fight is something pure, and we want it unadulterated. And the more rules and the more regulations um, and the more ways you have of making things official that you take away something from that. And I certainly think there's probably a tipping point where that's probably true, I just don't think we're anywhere even remotely close to that. I think we should empower referees, not make them be wallflowers. We should empower referees, for example, to be much more hands-on about um, stalling. Now, um, that can be difficult uh, at the low level because a lot of referees can't tell the difference between stalling and looking for something because there's a big, big difference. But if you have a capable referee... Um, John, a Herb, uh, a Jason Herzog, Mark Goddard, Leon Roberts, um, uh, and others could be reasonably relied upon. Dan Mergliotta to, to probably as well. They can be relied upon to, inf you know, crack the whip on action. I think that's actually what's missing. You know, you went back to what was the last fight between Pro Gonzalez and whoever she fought last. You know, that's if you're just pressing someone against the fence and they're just holding an underhook and then nothing else is happening, this is stalling. Both of them are stalling, but they're stalling. Call it. Move this action along. Now, if someone's on top in half guard and they're actively hunting a wrist, but they're not advancing physical position, that's not stalling you know, because they're really working at it. That's actually a really dangerous position that can go from bad to worst very, very quickly. So it would take a finer detail and a finer eye, and maybe the sport's not really ready for that yet because we haven't really accurately defined what stalling is and looks like and how it should be enforced. But I fundamentally believe that if you had referees capable of um, you know, uh, measuring the difference between them and acting upon them and then empowering them to do something about it, one issue is eye pokes and whether you have a red or yellow card system. Another one is when there's just boring-ass action. Um, getting involved and to the point you're raising, you know, why isn't there, why is there a lack of punishment? The referees have this view that to the extent they need to be, they should be wallflowers. Now they completely shift that mentality when it comes to stopping a fight. I think most of them, whether they're good or they're bad at it, really want to do the right thing. They want to get in there and protect the fighter who is being, um, you know, uh, who's not intelligently defending themselves. So it's, I, I don't need them to have that kind of urgency and I don't want them to have the current position where, you know, I really don't want to get involved here because of the 10-point must system. If the referee doesn't want to get involved because of the 10-point must system, then the 10-point must system is a problem because we have to have some kind of scoring where referee involvement can and should make an impact. Uh, and right now, we just have this thing where we look at fights like, oh, my God, this is a fight in its most pure state, that's a real fight. If you put rounds, that's less real. If you put gloves, that's less real. This is a very cancerous attitude that we don't need to take seriously. 
We need to figure out how do we take these rules to create measures of safety, certain thresholds, and then how do we empower the officials in place to make competent decisions as well as in recognition that the sport needs some action and they should push it. Someone says, uh, they write this, that ref was too mouthy. The glove grabs were an issue, but every time Gall posted, not grabbed on the fence, he would yell at him and, and tell him not to grab it. Yep, that, that yellow card should have been whipped out way, way sooner. Way sooner. And I think it just has this dramatic impact. You can even put a graphic representation on it, you know, on the screen. I think it would be really cool if they did that. But, you know, American audiences might be like, why are they bringing in all that soccer? Who knows? Um, am I the ultimate honey dicker? Your response to the red folks calling you out as a honey dicker in this, this thread. Some of it's correct. I mean, I'm not, I'm not intentionally honey dicking, but it comes out that way. So whether you intend to it or not, it can look that way and it can be that way. And maybe it is that way, but you're not trying to. Uh, you tease the Rockhold big announcement, which till today we don't know what it is. As I mentioned before, first quarter of 2018. And I actually have documented evidence about that, but you can believe me when it happens. I'm actually doing like the opposite bit. Most MMA media do the bit where they like don't say anything and then news happens. They're like, yeah, I knew that all along. I'm doing the opposite bit where I'm telling you it's coming and everyone's just sort of waiting for the bus to arrive. And sometimes it doesn't. Uh, you tease your exclusive interview with the Diaz bros, which never came to fruition. This was not my fault. Someone says it was a vault of a shady manager. That's right. Um, his good manager, you can find him on Instagram at Mighty Matt. That guy reached out to me. We worked it out. Nate Diaz hit me up, and I met him up that night, which you could verify on his Snapchat. Now, lesson learned, if I ever get Nate on, I've given up on Nick. But if I ever get Nate on, um, I'm not going to announce it until he's literally on the line. I'm still going to pursue that. Uh, also, I don't get credit for this. When I was on MMA Uncensored, you recall both Diaz brothers were on at the same time with his old manager uh, or old you know, what do you want to call them? Handler of affairs. Um, Jonathan Tweedell. Uh, I was able to get both of them on at the same time. So I've actually already done it once. I was looking for, I got greedy and was looking for the repeat, but I actually, anyone on that show will tell you uh, through that guy, I booked those two. So I've actually already done it. I should get credit for that. And then someone says the mousetrap saying it's legit, but refused to elaborate. Okay. As I explained, if you are a SiriusXM subscriber, you can go back and listen to that. It's available to anyone who has access to the archive. The deal that Demetrius did with me was he goes, I will show it to you. He actually said this on air, so you can, I can verify this. Uh, I'll show it to you, but the catch is you can't, you can tell people that this happened, but you can't tell anybody about it. Like, what good is him showing me the mousetrap because I asked to see it? If I just reveal to the world what it is, everyone will then know, and then it reduces the element of surprise. So, okay. He then showed me in the hallways of SiriusXM, my wife saw, his wife saw, uh, my producer saw, two of my other producers, assistant producers saw, a UFC rep saw, this was in the hallway. So there's A, audio of him telling me he's going to do it, and B, I have a ton of witnesses. So um, that's all true. That's 100% true. But, you know, I get it. I get it. Like, there's probably something to be said for keeping some things secret unless I'm really ready to officially report it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, if Bisping's cup hadn't broke, no one's talking about this. This is a great question. That was craziness. If Bisping's cup hadn't broke, would the fight have gone differently? Now, that's a bit of a different question, but I just mean I've been watching MMA for a long time. I can't recall many times I've seen a lot of cup breaks where they have to swap them. 
Um, and another thing that sort of occurred to me was like, what if somebody tears someone else's pants completely? Like it's not usable. It won't stay up any longer. What do you do then? I don't know what the rules with that would be. I'm, I'm assuming that these have been, you know, articulated somewhere, but, um, you know, this is, I mean, there's every, every time you think you've seen the end of MMA, you always get surprised at what's there, but all right. GSP looked great in the first round, but in the second round, he was breathing heavy, and Bisping was putting it on him and had him in danger. With the cut breaking, Bisping wasn't moving in the third like he was in the second. He wasn't throwing as many kicks, and he was more tentative in bringing the fight to GSP. Uh, Bisping has arguably the best cardio in the UFC, so this likely can only be blamed on the cup. Do you think the third round would have gone differently had the cup not broken? I didn't see it as a performance issue. I'm sure it was uncomfortable, but Bisping never complained about it afterwards. I guess, I don't know if anybody asked him about it because I got there towards the end of his press conference after I was doing my post-fight show. So that's a great question. My initial hunch is to say probably not enough that the difference in winning or losing was flipped, but maybe the competitiveness of it. Also, do you think the handling of the cup break was correct? Just letting it sit in his shorts and bouncing around seems like a horrible idea, and there had to be a better alternative. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the rule, as I understand it, is that you have to have one, they have to check it, and it has to be affirmed in place. So I don't know if a rule was broken by not having it affirmed in place, but I don't know how loose it was. You know what? I have to ask him. This is a great question. I really don't know. I really don't know. I don't know how much the cup issue affected him. Um let me make a note of that. That's a really good question. Let's see. Bisping's cup issue. That's a that's a really good one. Hmm. Wow. What is this? Oh, I know. How bitter are y'all about the Wonder Boy Till thing? Right last night, thinking it's a done deal. And then uh, Ariel out there breaking all everyone's hearts with his accurate reporting. Oh, man. Uh, Ariel, Ariel has spoken to the two relevant parties here, so I would trust his reporting over just about anybody's at this point. And um, if he's saying it's not on, it's not on. But the thing that was concerning was Wonder Boy's father's response. Like, eh, we're trying to look forward, not backward. Like, oh. you know. I've said this. I think there should be a union. I think that union should have a collective bargaining agreement. I think that union should provide protections for them, labor protections of a, a variety of kinds, including, but not limited to, um, some kind of retirement fund, uh, additional health screening and prevention and uh, care, um, higher pay, lots of things. But I really, and I, and I know this sounds crazy, and unfair, and I know a lot of people who think that the UFC should have all those things won't think this, but I also think that we should really carefully reconsider how much matchmaking control we want the fighters to have. Uh, obviously, you don't want to force them into fights that they don't want to be into. I don't know how you create an incentive to get around this exactly, um, but... Having a promoter who is able more forcefully to create fights without limitation is going to get you the kind of fights you want to see more often. Because who doesn't want to see Darren Till versus Wonderboy Thompson? I'm sure there are a few. I'm sure there are some. But uh, 
can you fault Wonderboy? It rationally makes sense for him and his father, or his father anyway, to say that. It just sucks for you and me. So, you know, I, I don't know how we get from here to there, but I fundamentally believe, and I keep using the word fundamentally, so please don't kill me, but I, you know, uh, strenuously would like to point out There are going to be times, quite often, that fighter interest in matchmaking does not match consumer interest in matchmaking. You have to ask yourself what kind of paradigm makes more sense for you, given your position. As a media member slash consumer, I certainly take the plight of fighters seriously. Um, they have not, in a leveraged world, had a whole lot for a very long time, at least not without collective action. But I wouldn't want to see the apple cart so turned over that the fights that we really want to see become even harder to get made. And that, I, I, don't, I don't know. It's, it helps the fighters to an extent. It doesn't really help you and me. But taking away that control, if they ever could, without um, requisite financial compensation or some other kind of um, level of health care or what, all those things, like if, they, if, the, if the deal was well, we're just going to take away some kind of matchmaking rights from them and just have a, you know, current situation, absent matchmaking rights, you know, that would be totally untenable for me. It, my, my, my condition is that I do think that the promoter should have more leeway on this, um, given that they have higher pay, that they have better health care, that they have retirement, that they have a number of things guaranteed to them contractually. If the UFC still gave names to events, UFC 217 would be called A, Bully Beatdown, B, Karma's a Bitch, C, The Comeuppance, or D, You Had It Coming. I think A, Bully Beatdown. Someone says E, The Exception. Oh, never mind. I don't want to read that one. Uh, here's a question that's a thousand pages long. Leota Machida. What do you think should be next for Leota Machida? Do you think he's shot? Speaking of shot, is it time to book Machida Pen too? Oh, God. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that one in a while. The first fight between those two. Oh, my God. Can you imagine Machida Pen now? Man, it'd be real bad for Pen. It's crazy to think that's what he, he was fighting back in the day. Good Lord. Um, what should be next for Leota Machida? Do you think he's shot? Well... Okay, so I spoke to him before his fight, and what he told me was, I was like, what did you work on from a technique standpoint in your absence? And his answer was, uh, he really worked on his wrestling and his grappling. You might recall he got submitted, but given what Jake Shields has been doing since he teamed up with the Dan Hurd Death Squad, this should not be overlooked. He beat, submitted him in a, in a grappling contest. But to me, that's not the headline. The headline is, Leo Machido was out there in grappling competitions, right? So... Um, against very good opposition, Jake Shields is awesome. Um, so he, there, there seems to be some evidence of that. It's just that at, he, at near 40, you know, what, um, what, uh, what kind of, what kind of shot can he take? Basically, what kind of shot can he take? And I don't know that he can take a great one anymore. And that's that's a big problem. Like, you know, there was a great fighter. You guys might not remember him. If you're French-Canadian, you'll remember him. There was a fighter out there by the name of Jonathan Goulet a long time ago 
Uh, he fought in the UFC. You watch Jonathan Goulet fight, and um, he was great. He was great. He could do everything. He was a good athlete. He could strike. He could wrestle. He had good subs. You know, I mean, to varying degrees, obviously, but he was a very talented fighter. He just couldn't take a shot. Uh, and that got him in big trouble in the UFC because you're eventually going to get hit. And part of this is that the people who can't take a shot are normally, even if they're very talented in other things, they're normally weeded out on the process up. And Goulet was so talented that didn't really lim that didn't really hurt him in terms of getting to the big leagues. But once he got to the big leagues, it kind of affected him. And so um, we take it for granted. We take it for granted that uh, – what's up? One second. All right. That people can just take a shot, and they can't. You think you might be able to take a shot. I think I might be able to take a shot. The reality is we take shots at different levels. And even if you can wrestle, and even if you can strike, and even if you can do jiu-jitsu, if someone puts it on your chin and your body can't absorb the damage, you, you have no future in fighting. It's not much of a great one. And Or if you're a really great fighter who is now old and no longer capable of taking a shot, you know, this this creates some problems. He's not just going out. He's going out cl like cold. So is he done done? Maybe. That might be possible. My sense is there's probably one or two more fights left in him. But, you know, he had designs on a title. I don't see that. Uh, I don't see that. You know, he looked good early when he was landing those lefts as – Brunson was coming in, but you know, part of this is a damage absorption business. You can you know, look at GSP. You know, GSP fights as smart as anybody. Look at his face. Look at his look at his, you know, nose. Listen to him talk about being abducted by aliens. You know, this is a damage sport. Some of it's going to come your way, and if your capacity to absorb it is fairly limited, so your career is going to be limited too. Uh, people were asking. How will the Alley Act impact the UFC? Tomorrow, Randy Couture and Mark Ratner will speak about a possible Alley Act extension into MMA at the hearing at the House of Reps. Um, if the Alley Act is extended to MMA, how will it impact the UFC? What will it mean for the fighters? And what will be the UFC's counter moves? I'm supposed to go to this, by the way. I got a seat last minute. Um, I was going to be... Um, there's no beat tomorrow. There was going to be a beat, and now there's not because there's some other special programming happening. So stay tuned for that here on MMA Fighting. But... Um, now that I'm back in D.C., I'm probably just going to go to this. I, got, I actually got a seat to go to attend, so um, we'll see how that goes. But a few things, the biggest of which um, is going to be that it makes makes the promoters open their books. It gives the fighters a right to see how the promoter, how and how much the revenue, uh, how and how much the, the promoter generates from revenue from an event. Um and that enables the fighters to make an informed decision. If they know you're making X amount for merchandise from the live gate, from whatever, they can say, I want a piece of that, I want a piece of that, or I want a total piece. Or it, make, it enables them to understand what they're up against. If you don't know what somebody makes, there's a decent chance you might lowball them in an effort to not overextend yourself. There's probably some social psychology experiments about that, but you get the idea. Uh, if you have a clear understanding of what exactly is being generated and you believe you're entitled to, let's say, half, um, this enables you to ask for it because they can't hide that. Now, the UFC claims that the fighters, for example, have auditing rights about pay-per-views. I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know 
how often fighters exercise that right, but you get the idea. The Alley Act also puts limits on you know, how much time a promoter can lock a fighter into a contract. You can imagine that you know these you hear all about these champions clauses and how these you know they, they never sunset and things like that. Um, it would have it would create a, a, a third party rankings that fighters could use to measure their objective worth um, and that they could use to garner for themselves the biggest fights. It, you know you would guarantee number one contenders to for an extent. Uh, um, they would be entitled to certain matchups. It just it gives the fighters a lot more power relative to the promoters. But this is my problem. I'm all for the guys making money, man. Believe me, I am. They are they are grossly underpaid, and they have been for a long time. But the matchmaking control uh, gives me the heebie-jeebies, to be honest. I don't know that I think um, um I don't know that I like that so much. And by the way, the third party rankings would be uh, a function of the Association of Boxing Commissions, but. Again, that would require the law to fundamentally change to give them some federal oversight, which they currently, for mixed martial arts, don't have. So, primarily, that's what it would do. But to me, it would shift. It would shift matchmaking control. It would shift power balances. It would shift. You know, it would change contract. It would change a lot. It would change a lot. Or maybe it wouldn't change a lot, other than how fighters get fights, and what fights are made. And I think a lot of those fights would be made outside of consumer interest or, you know, significant consumer interest. So. Someone's asking if the Yoana stoppage was early. It's one thing to argue whether or not the stoppage was a function of tapping. She's now denying it. It looked like she was tapping, but let's assume, first of all, if it, if, can we just have a moment about this? Even if you want to tap from strikes, I don't care. Um, many people have tapped to strikes, including GSP, who we're also saying might be the best of all time. It's uh, Shogun tapped to strikes. I mean, people are really going to question Shogun's bona fides. I mean, that, that seems ludicrous, right? So even if she did, it basically doesn't matter. Now, it's kind of funny given that she was like, I'm going to take your soul, believe me. It's like, well, it seems in stark contrast to that. But look, very tough people and very decorated fighters um, have historically tapped to strikes in certain situations. I you know, just have to accept that. Now, even if she did, uh, well, if she did, not the close of the show, then the fight's over. But even if she didn't, she looked like she was upset that she had gotten beat. But I don't hear her ever saying the stoppage was early. Now, maybe she'll say it down the line, but... You know, if you're just on all fours facing down and you're kind of covering up, you got to be grabbing the leg. You got to be on your base. You got to be moving. You got to be pushing into them. You can't just sit there. So I don't really have much of an issue with the stoppage personally. I don't know if there's a big outcry about it, but I thought that I thought it was fine. You know, uh, crazy, but fine. Um, good question. With Demetrius Johnson fighting, well, okay, well. This is this person's question, but the larger question is good. But let me just read what this person says. With Demetrius Johnson, Demetrius spelled wrong, fighting subpar competition in comparison to some of the other perennial champions, and Anderson Silva and John Jones having gotten caught for steroid use recently, is it possible to refuse GSP the unequivocal moniker of greatest of all time? So this came up on uh, a debate like this came up on Twitter. And after every event, it seems, whether it's John Jones, because John Jones fought at what, 214, then Demetrius fought at what, 216. Or 250, I can't remember. Yeah, 216. And then uh, GSP fights at 217. It's like after every event, we're like, oh, he's the GOAT. Wait, wait, wait. 
Now Demetrius did that. He's the GOAT. Okay, here's GSP winning two weight classes. He's the GOAT. Now GSP did something very, very different because he now captured another uh, weight class uh, title. Okay, so that, that's different. And Demetrius, you know, breaking that record is interesting as well. But um, I think we should just hold off on this debate is what I think. My hunch is, as it stands, probably GSP has the best argument. But Demetrius's career is not over as it stands today. John Jones's career is not over. And frankly, neither is St. Pierre's career over. Um, there's still a lot of fighting left for all three of these gentlemen, and who knows what Connor's going to do. So I think we need to wait. We literally at a point where people who we are saying the greatest of all time are still competing. And different people who people are saying is the greatest of all time are still competing. It's as if Michael Jordan and LeBron were still playing in the league together. You know, and Kobe was still there. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Probably MJ. Maybe you think LeBron. Maybe there's some, I don't, I don't really know. I don't know what the answer is, but um, let's wait. Let's wait because there's just, we can't, you know, if you're changing your opinion every other month about this, then it seems to me that we don't have enough information to make a really clear choice. So, so if you want to think it's St. Pierre, wouldn't argue with you too much. If you want to think it's DJ, wouldn't argue with you too, too much. Um, but I think mostly it's a question where there's no real answer right now. These things need to play out a little bit. And then once they do, we can make a better, a better call about it all. Uh, hey, Luke, no question this week. Just a crazy stat I never thought I'd see. In his last two fights, Demi and Maya had 32 takedown attempts and not a single one completed. Could you imagine that stat six months ago? MMA is crazy. No, I could not have. That is a... That is a crazy stance, but that was one of my fundamental beliefs that I think did hold up uh, after the fact is that Tyron Woodley helped create a blueprint about how to beat him, about how to beat his second and third attempts on takedowns. And then Colby Covington, who is a very, very good wrestler, was able to, in his own ways as well, um, follow that blueprint pretty accurately. People have figured out how to stop his takedowns and how to avoid entanglements with him. And that has made it significantly easier to beat him. Before, they couldn't stop his entanglements. And some still can't. You know, you got two All-American wrestlers. All right, they're going to have some trouble. But uh, Oh, Lord. All right. Bisping. If this is the end of Michael Bisping, how will he be remembered? Overrated Big Mouth? No. European pioneer, yes. Underdog who finally got on top, yes. A true great, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about that one. So the the, the overrated big mouth, no. I mean, he won a title and and he beat some very very good fighters. I mean, anyone can be overrated depending on what you say about him. I don't feel like people are saying. I, I don't feel like people had this impression of him that he was something more than he was. In fact, if anything, they maybe have underrated him to some extent. So no, European pioneer, obviously, right? Being a champion like that, being out of the ultimate fighter and coming along at a time when there wasn't a lot of guys in the UK doing what he was doing, no doubt about it. An underdog who finally got on top. How many times was he an underdog in so many fights? He lost some fights, of course, but he was an underdog a lot and he was able to persevere. And, and I think even through his damaged eye and whatever else, he was able to win a title after all this. I mean, this is, you know, this is, we've talked about it ad nauseum. He's a true the best test case I've ever seen 
and the best example I, I should say of the value of perseverance. Some of its dangers too, I suppose, but you're not going to find more guys who are more perseverant than him and a true great. And that's where the debate gets complicated, you know. Um, I don't think his resume is on the same level as some of the other guys who are true greats. Now, it's a very, very, very good resume, something to be truly proud of. But, when, you know, having this career where that where you were very, very good, but just beneath the very best for a whole long time, then you get the title and the win was good. But then the defense was, um, you know, not a particularly decorated defending campaign, I think you could say. Um, you know, I sort of, I, I, I had wondered on Saturday night whether some people thought it would turn him back into a pumpkin. I don't think it did that. It didn't turn him back into like nothing all of a sudden, but I think it does bring him back a little bit to earth, which is to say he probably overachieved relative to some expectations that maybe people had for him around 2014 or 2015, let's say. But I don't think he overachieved to the point where he was able to cement himself as one of the best fighters ever. He is probably um, an excellent fighter, certainly one of the best fighters ever out of Europe. I don't think that's crazy. Uh, and, you know, what was Michael Bisping's superpower? Good cardio, yes, but when so many fighters turn brittle after bad losses, it just never affected him. It just never affected him. You put GSP's body uh, or you put his mind inside GSP's body, you might have the Terminator, man. That Skynet would be real after that, you know? Just there's nobody mentally built like Michael Bisping, and I, I not maybe Diego Sanchez or something in a different way, but you know maybe 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 it's him and Diego, and that's it. Like just a inability to be deterred by bad things. It's I don't know how else to say it. It's uh, it's it's it, you take it for granted because you've probably had times in your life where something bad happened and you push through and something good happened. But I'm talking about the kind of bad things that when they happen to other dudes that tough, that they're never the same. Uh, very, very talented people, tough people, hard people, you know. Um, and Bisping was a level above that. Several levels above that. You know, that's, that's, it's crazy. So, like, in that sense, he's one of the best ever. But it just in terms of a record of achievement, while very high, please do not misunderstand me, very high, I would say comes one step below um, being truly one of the greats of the sport. Johnny Hendricks get cut. You know what's funny about this? Someone says, I feel like the fight with Bohachinia was almost unethical matchmaking. I don't. And predicted serious injury. Does he look seriously injured? Thankfully, Big John was the ref and saw the fight trending in a bad way. True. Uh, should they just cut the guy? The sport seems way too dangerous for a guy that doesn't seem physically prepared. Yeah. Yeah, they probably should. Uh, I don't know promotionally what value he holds for them. And he, you know, one in five in his last six. This is not something I think he can do at this level anymore. Um, we've all got our theories about why that is, but take it for what it is. Do Is there a lot of promotional need to see him? And is there an ethical decision the UFC has to make? I think there is. You know, I'm not out here calling for him to lose his job, but if you're asking me to examine what's happening with him against other cases where fighters have been let go for, you know, similar concerns, he would clearly be a candidate for uh, that kind of thing. So um, it's, uh, you know, it's a difficult thing. I think what really concerns me is everyone's like, well, he's going to go to Bellator, but unless, and it could be true. If you, if you believe that if he went to Bellator, 
uh, and was absent, or I should say absent, was outside the purview of USADA and that this would bring him back to whatever levels they used to be there, then maybe there's a hope for him in Bellator. But if you're Bellator, do you really want to rehabilitate Johnny Hendricks? I don't know that you do. Um, because, I, again, I, I know it's convenient to be like, well, it's just the juice issue. But I don't think that's – I don't. I just don't – even if that's a big component of it, it's not the only one. Um, I just don't know how you can look at him and say, after all those bad cuts and weight cuts that are missed and everything – I don't know how you can say that it didn't ravage his body. I mean, look at the weight cut that Joanna and Jacek went through. You know, she obviously, she weighed in at the very end. To me, she looked gaunt on that scale. And I've seen her take big shots. Now, I'm sure Rose put knuckles on chin. But I, I've seen her take big shots before and hold up with better composure. I really wonder how much that cut affected her ability to take a shot. And so you... You take that and you put it on an exponential curve and somewhere towards the top you find Johnny Hendricks in terms of all the damage done by that. Um, I don't know. I don't think that's reversible. Chris, Chris Lieben on my show said he's on thyroid medication the rest of his life because of damage from weight cutting. You know, I don't... Um, these are not easily repairable things. So he's... You know, I, that's, that, that's a decision between him and his promoter and him and his family and uh, him and his doctor but um you know not only are all signs trending in the wrong direction i don't know how you reverse them even another promoter i don't i anything's possible in this sport we've seen crazier but that is that he's in a bad place to put it to put it mildly all right let's go to the twitter machine oh man i never tweeted this thing out Let's go to the Twitter machine and um, see what you guys have to say. I'm at L Thomas News on Twitter. And uh, yes, tweet me. All right. Someone says, thoughts on Andre Arlovsky on Saturday. He's on a five-fight losing streak and was finished in four of those fights. I love Arlovsky, but how has he not been cut yet? You know, I think he's still got a bit of a name, and they might be doing this bit like, you know, hey, they put Rashad on UFC Mexico, or they put BJ Penn on UFC Oklahoma City. You know, they're putting him against Junior Albini, who looked very good, very fluid with his combinations. Um, and they're putting him on UFC Norfolk. Maybe they're trying to, you know, I don't know that this is the case, but it seems to me like there's probably something to be said that they're trying to usher out and exit, you know, a bit of a uh, torch passing. But heavyweight's thin. Arlovsky hits hard. He's a veteran. Albini would be very foolish to walk in there and think he's just going to run over the guy. But my sense is that's, you know, when you have these fading legends at the end, they want to give them kind of a cushion to fall at the end. Uh, I thought the Tabora fight was that, but maybe not. The other issue to consider is that sometimes they want to let these guys um, finish out their contracts. So they might be saying, well, we'll just let him finish out his deal. And then, you know, rather than just cut him, you know, let him finish out his deal because he can still add some name value to a card in a place like Norfolk where they need to probably, you know, do what they can to produce ticket sales. So, um, yeah. Isn't Trevor Whitman such a great, underappreciated coach? Coaching great fighters always seems like a really positive, happy guy. Yes, I tried to speak to him. Um, I'll just say it outright. I wanted to do a technique talk with him, and uh, he's not doing any media. You guys notice he didn't do any media? Either much, much, I don't know if he did any before. He didn't do any afterwards. He was super friendly about it. He was like, you know, apologetic, which he did not need to be, of course, but he was. Um, he just doesn't want to do any media. So 
maybe one day down the line I can get a chance to speak with him. I've interviewed him before. Uh, and it went fine, but um, right now he's just not doing any media. So I was bummed. Him and John Danaher. I can't get to do a technique talk with. Killing me, John. You're killing me. All right. Your favorite UFC event on pay-per-view and UFC fight night. Again, I'll say it before. Uh, favorite pay-per-view, probably 189, 199, maybe 166. And then the favorite UFC fight night, easy call, uh, Caro versus Diego. It's just it's just one of my all-time favorites. When when they were in the clinch, Carl was tossing him and like these incredible tosses. And then Diego hit him right in the chin, launched his tooth into the middle. Of, I mean, this was an amazing fight for me. You know, maybe maybe it seems kind of boring by modern standards. You know, you go back and you watch Forrest versus um, you know Bonner, and you're like, eh, wasn't that great? But to me, that one. You ask me what my favorite is. That's my favorite. Is Chad Mendes still a title contender when he returns from suspension? If you could put a couple of wins together, sure. If not, probably not. Uh, good question. And I have to own up to this. With all the recent UFC cards, do you think that they had long enough to promote UFC 217? You know, uh, I think my colleague Dave Doyle made a great point. We have to stop fretting in advance about a card we kind of just have to wait until the very end to see exactly how it's going to do and i think that's correct audiences both i think casual and uh hardcore it used to be the case that you could feel buzz coming from a mile away and that told you a lot and for a really big event like i made with the mcgregor you obviously can but you can still have a very successful event a 214 a 217 and a week out you're like i don't know about this and then the day of you're like okay this is hot I don't know what changed. I don't know how it changed, but it kind of did. I mean, yes, things always heat up as you get closer, but it just, there used to be a bit of, it, it, the, the events would cast a wider net. So, you know, two weeks ago when I'm like, uh, I don't know about this one with GSP, here's what I think. One, there's just this new dynamic of people come around late on these things. And then two, I think it is true that the new audience did not know who he was, but here's the reality. There was enough of the older casual fan base that came back. I can't tell many people who used to watch MMA with me we're like, hey, man, I haven't watched UFC in a while, but I'm going to catch GSP. I'm, I'm excited for his return. You match that with the current audience that's there who got exposed to him. He had a great win in a way, and ultimately it kind of worked. So, like, this generation didn't know about him, but I think they were ready to learn about him. And the participation of the older generation in pushing this to success maybe helped create some new GSP fans or at least new GSP pay-per-view customers, something like that. So, you know, uh, it was it was right to be like, Jesus, I don't. Uh, I don't know how this is trending because at the time it was trending poorly. Um, but these things take on a life of their own very late. And I think after 214 did that, after 217 did that, we have to be very careful now about saying things will or won't go well or um, whatever the case. And, and again, even on the MMA beat that I hosted, I thought it would do well because I thought those older MMA fans would come home. But this one even exceeded my expectations given that. So something to keep in mind. or false zufa boxing will be a co-promotion with connor's promotional company and the first main event will be artem versus paulie please kill me if that's true true or false if gsp called out mcgregor in the post-fight interview the ufc had no choice but to book that fight maybe probably if cody lands that right hand 10 seconds earlier and finishes the fight is he the second biggest star in the ufc this is bigger he would that would have been a significant growth for him sure 
is there a correct way to pronounce, and it's the word for sausage dogs. I don't speak German. My understanding of it is Dachshund. Do you have a Dachshund uh, or Dachshund? If you want to just say it in like super Anglo-sized American English. That's how, I, that's how I've learned it. What do you make of uh, Makwan Amerikani doing anti-bullying campaigns, but then doing his best McGregor act? I don't know. What do you make of Dana White's comment on Rose's post-fight speech that he, quote, doesn't need fighters to talk, citing UFC's job to promote fights? How can fighters take that seriously, considering the success Trash Talk brings? Yeah, I don't understand it either. I mean, they have asked fighters, you know, well, it used to be Brian Stan, but now Cormier Rogan, hey, who do you want to fight next? And they're expected to give the matchmaker some some direction. Uh, I mean, that's not necessarily going out. Maybe Dana White means like, oh, F you, F your mom. Maybe he doesn't need that. But they clearly have ceded some of the matchmaking um, to the fighters themselves in terms of who wants who. And so part of that is just, you know, not necessarily outright trash talk, but you know, making, making those things public, which naturally leads to that kind of thing too. Do you think Ronda got away with trash talk more than Ioana? Uh, always easy to get away with trash talk when you're winning. It's when you start losing that people are like, mm, right? Or if you're Connor and you lose, but you're still really good at it, you know? But if you're just doing it and you're losing... It's just the, the the climate isn't nearly as hospitable. So I don't think Ronda in the end got away with much. By the way, did you guys see her on Conan? They're still doing this thing where it's like Ronda the Terminator. She goes there and she's like, I'm going to show you with my demonstration. I'm going to help with my friend. The hell his name is. It's just some guy. And um, we're going to show you what it's like to be on the new Xbox One X or whatever they're calling this new thing. And then she like, you know, hits the home button and it whoom, makes the sound. And then she pretends to punch him in the balls and everyone. And then, and then what's his face? Andy Richter goes, that's awesome. <laughs> and I'm like, are we still doing this y'all? Are we still doing this thing? This like thing where, you know, everyone is super afraid of her. I mean, I'm not saying she's not tough as hell and didn't do amazing things in MMA, but this like character she plays almost, you know, when she was in the Bud Light commercials and she was the enforcer and she goes on SNL and she's like the tough one. And even this one now, it just feels so inauthentic and unrelatable, uh, which is to say she's not tough. You know, of course she is. But, you know, it's just this veneer that has been shattered that has never been repaired. Like, Joanna goes out there and, and not only spoke to the media at the presser, she spoke to ESPN. She spoke to Megan Olivia on Fox Sports. Like, she got out there and faced the firing squad. And so did Conor McGregor. And I think that goes a long way towards uh impressions about somebody and wanted didn't do like any of that uh and now there's just a lot of her trotting her out as like some bully it's just it's it's so bizarre it's so disconnected from where the actual views and appetite for rousey content is you know do you think bisping's trash talk was effective at gsp at all no somehow comical trash talk just doesn't seem to do much yeah it was just enough to get him to be a loudmouth britain you know some people love that. Some people hate that, but that's good for sales kind of thing. Who has the second best self-belief after Connor Bisping? 
True or false GSP Endgame match Connor two titles simultaneous with next fight for 170 title. Then a super fight Connor at 155, making him the only three division title holder ever equals GSP plan to go down as MMA GOAT. I know that seems far fetched. I don't think that's far fetched at all. How do you think a fight between Darren Till and Wonderboy will go if it happens? I don't know. I thought Cerrone was too big of a test for Till. That wasn't true. That wasn't true at all. Wonderboy seems like he's too big of a test for Till, but I think Till looks like a man on fire. So I would love to see that fight. I really, really, really hope they find a way to make that. That would be so cool. So cool. Mayweather McGregor is worth how many one million pay-per-view buys? Four and a half. If my math is correct, and it is. Does GSP have a better chance with Whitaker or Woodley? I would say Woodley, but opinions on that one would vary. Given the aftermath of UFC 217, that doesn't mean I necessarily pick him to beat Woodley. I just you're asking me Woodley or Whitaker, who's got a better chance at victory? I think Woodley. Given the aftermath of UFC 217, do you, do you think we'll see curtailment of fighters other than Connor trying to use trash talk to sell a fight, or does the fact that it did help sell the fight? make the risk of looking foolish if you get KO'd worth the reward if you don't. I would not expect a big paradigm shift, no. I think it was refreshing for consumers to see um, the opposite of the, you know, to see a guy like GSP win. I think you might see some people try to copy that, but basically I think the toothpaste is out of the tube on this, and once he leaves, um, you know, the, the current path we're on will only be accelerated. Until they're until that gets so old that what he I mean, he looks refreshing, but I don't know if he looks so refreshing that people can use that to box office success, like just being a good guy, hard to pull off and be a box office attraction. Is Masvidal's biggest weakness being too passive? Partly it has been. He fights tough guys, but I feel like he's too willing to fight on his opponent's terms instead of dictating the pace in terms of the fight. I thought so too, but then he did the opposite in a couple of contests, including the Cerrone one. So it's not it's not as much of a problem as it used to be, but it, it certainly was a problem in the uh, Wonder Boy fight. Similar question. With GSP's win, does the faction of MMA fans that want honor, respect, and discipline grow enough to combat the rampant douchebaggery? A fake manufactured shit talk. Probably not, but there might be a slight, slight correction. Uh, did GSP absorb too much damage versus Bisping? No. When should GSP retire based on total damage absorbed? If he gets viciously KO'd, that probably would be enough. Or TKO, that even that might be enough, to be honest. But like if he got submitted, yeah. Good question. Have you heard the UFC make any statements about Fight Pass being used? Were they hacked and potentially customers' info compromised or were employees looking for a few bucks? I don't know anything about mining other than what I read about it. So there was this UFC fight pass where, as I understand it, and I, I'm probably going to mess this up so don't get too mad at me, but basically the software um, that it was off of fight pass ended up partly on individual users' computers, and that may have slowed performance on your computer for them to run this cryptocurrency program. Um, and it was addressed and deleted. So the question is, did someone at a rogue UFC employee put it on there? Um, probably not. Or did some hackers put it on there? Remember that Remember, you know, UFC, remember when Dana White hacked, dared hackers to hack them and they, and they obliged him. 
I wonder if that was the problem because you know slowing down your computer performance is not the end of the world, but as it relates to getting information from you, that can be a bit of a problem, right? So uh, interesting question. Very last one. Have you done anything similar to a fight companion in the past? No, I might try one of my personal. Uh, I'm probably going to try one of my personal channel. Um, I don't know if it's going to be good. I don't know if it's going to be bad. We're going to see how it goes, uh, and then we'll go from there. So, yeah. But my post-fight show on MMA fighting will be here, 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 on Saturday night after the fights. We'll go for about 30 minutes or so. Okay. Thank you guys so much for watching. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, give it a thumbs up. Subscribe to MMA Fighting's channel if you can. And uh, be on the lookout for maybe some special content tomorrow. Be on the lookout maybe for stuff on Saturday, my post-fight show, and a whole lot more. Thank you guys so much for watching. And until next time, stay frosty.